This podcast is sponsored by Position Green. To be an insider, you can subscribe to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable, wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star rating. Welcome to the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education's important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now, here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. And we welcome you into another edition of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. My name is Greg Frank, sitting on the sidelines again for this one, but we're going to get things going with Ann Niemer. Ann's always the one who gets things started. She's the eRenewable COO. Here's Ann to lead things off. Position Green helps companies build resilient and sustainable organizations. Position Green has a unique combination of ESG software, advisory, e-learning, and assurance that drives sustainability success and empowers positive change. Visit positiongreen.com to learn more. Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am Mike Niemer. I'm here today with my wife, Ann Niemer, outside of Fredericksburg, Texas. We're in the Hill Country, and we're visiting the Paternellis Cellars, and I'm here with the co-owner and executive winemaker, David Culkin. David, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys today. Well, you know, in our venture of trying to educate people in the sustainability market, we were coming out to our timeshare at Canyon Lake, and I told Ann, when we head to Fredericksburg, let's see if there's a sustainable winery that we come up with to go interview. And she found you. And so here we are to talk about your sustainable winery. But before we get into the exact details of the winery, Tell us a little bit about your journey, David, and then let's talk about the winery after that. Well, I didn't, uh, didn't start in this business necessarily. I came out of school, an engineer from Rice University here in Texas, and I went straight into the software business. So I spent 10 years in software, actually mostly working for energy companies in Houston and then for startups here in Austin. But business school in the mid 2000s. I went to UT and wanted to find a path into starting a business, looked at a lot of different opportunities. Um, And, you know, the background for the wine industry for me was that my parents had retired out here in the hill country back in the mid 90s and planted a vineyard. Uh, They had gotten into the side of just the farming. We're selling to wineries out here. And when I was at business school and started to look at the growth of the Texas wine industry in Texas, started to realize there was an opportunity to come into the business here. And there was a chance for me to kind of dovetail a lot of things I really cared about, cared about how the, sort of the creative side of being able to do something, uh, to build something, the engineering of it, the entrepreneurship in terms of running a business and the sustainability side of having a business that really gives you some pathways to finding kind of a responsible way to build a business for us. Um, yeah, I mean, it started when I got into this. My sister and her husband at the time were moving in from Europe and also wanting to start a business. So we we began working on building out the winery. At that point, probably there were eight, nine wineries out here today. I'm not sure I can even count uh, where we're at, but it's easily 80 to 90 just in this kind of hill country local area. So it's grown a ton over the last 15 years. Well, no, you speak of your sister, Julie, uh, the other co-owner, and that's who you got a hold of to uh, arrange this, correct? That's correct. I reached out to the tasting room and I said, we want to come out there and talk to someone about sustainability at 
at your winery and they put me in touch with Julie and here we are today. Well, David, you know, uh, our mission is sustainability and we know based on what we saw on the website, sustainability, there is a passion from you all with regards to that and you're doing different things and making an effort to make sustainable wine. Tell the listener about what is involved with making a more sustainable wine than not. Sure. And so one of the things about um, the wine industry is, is that, you know, you have multiple levels to this. You have the level of the vineyard in terms of trying to farm in a way that, um, you know, when we talk about sustainability, we're sort of talking both environmentally and generationally sustainable, that we're doing things that are good for the soil, the land, the community. Um, and of course, something that we feel good about having our kids in the vineyard working with it and something that will last, right? Something that actually uses the land um, and gives back to the land in a cycle that is actually sustainable. So there's, there's that part of it in terms of how we run it. And we can, we'll talk a little bit in detail on the vineyard side. Um, and then there's the, there's the operational side here, right? In terms of trying to make wine in a way that's sustainable. And he, you know, and there it is both about the practice in terms of how, what we do inside the operation, uh, the choices we make, and of course the investments we make in the business. Um, so, I mean, I can sort of dive in at one, one of those or another when we, you know, some of the first investments we made were really right up front in terms of how we built the winery and how we, uh, went about sort of starting our operation. So like, uh, I think Julie had mentioned to you, one of the first big investments was really to use geothermal energy. Um, well, it's not so much geothermal energy actually here. It is a geothermal cooling system. So it's really just finding much greater efficiency using a geothermal system. So most of the chill chilling and cooling in the cellar is in fact using a below ground like cooling loops essentially to do the heat exchange for the chilling. Um, we additionally built that down into the ground. So a big portion of it is underground, largely just to get, take advantage of natural cooling that you'd get from a cave. Um, so th those kind of investments were up front. And on the vineyard side, that has been the, one of the more interesting journeys because I think we came in with the ambitions that we would grow organically. And we've been working towards finding as close as we can. I think part of the difficulty is, is that doing any crop in a place where it has not previously been done organic, you're having to learn hard lessons about what practices work and what don't. Um, so like even today, we're not fully certified organic here. We do finally have growers in the High Plains who are either organic or in transitional organic and should be in the next year or two. But again, it's taken time just like there you have to have to be willing to kind of work through the hard the hard problems of actually solving this in a new place to some extent. So I know you talked about uh, developing the property that you buy and planting it and so on and so forth. I assume not all soil is created equal and is the evaluation of the soil part of the purchase process you go through before you buy the land that you're on? Or do you come in and take soil out and put better soil in to plant? So it is all about finding a place where the soils are right. Um, and I think there's like, that is obviously a huge part of the growing. Um, you know, one of the features here in the Hill Country is just simply in a very diverse geology that is in the Hill Country. You can go just 100 feet in any direction and you'll find the geology even at the surface changes. Um, and that affects where we can plant. So like we're, this site that the winery is on is actually not where you see the vineyard. We have our vineyard located north of town because it has the right combination of soils, um, of natural sort of slope and siting in terms of sun exposure that we need. 
as well as having the appropriate amount of water for doing agriculture. Honestly, when it, we talk about sustainability here in Central Texas, as probably almost anywhere in Texas, it's often you start with water. It's can you actually do what you intend to do with the water that's going to be naturally available where you are? Um, you know, we can't count on getting the right amount of rain at the right time here to just simply be watering from natural, you know, sort of atmospheric sources. So a lot of it is groundwater and a lot of it is drip irrigation. So that site has much better water in terms of aquifer access than this site. Um, but the other thing is that we own up there about 240 acres on that site, 150 here. We can plant about 15 to 20 acres grapes on that site. Like in terms of what we feel like is naturally available in terms of water, that's about the limit. Um, and that is the other thing you find here is just that limited water dictates what you do. Um, here at this site, because water is so limited, we not only do we not farm on this site, but actually you'll see the rainwater collection that we use up at the building. And that helps to do a lot of both the landscape watering and we can use it if we need to, to supplement water for the production system. So um, again, water dictates so much here um, in terms of where you grow and also even where you can sustain a business like this. Well, when you're thinking about water and you're talking in Texas and we're in the middle of the worst drought ever, I'm sure that has affected a lot of your production and your operations and from soup to nuts caused different issues. Maybe some good, but I'm sure some bad. What's that journey been like this year that you didn't start the year counting on? Yeah, so this year is a perfect example. Like if um, why it's difficult to sort of to balance your decisions and make sustainable decisions. So it was already dry last year. We had a drought last year, and yet we actually had a decently wet winter and spring, um, both here in the hill country as well as the high plains. So this is sort of a really quick like kind of agriculture of vines thing. Vines are, this is a crop that once you put in the ground, you may have a vine in the ground for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's not like a row crop that you replant every year. So how the plant decides and how we kind of farm a plant is a lot of it is depend on the previous season. So with a wet winter, with a lot of water in the spring, plants actually put on a lot of fruit. And we actually have a lot of fruit this year, but it does set up a very difficult situation, which is that now for the last two months it's been over 100 degrees virtually every day no rain whatsoever yet the plants did put a lot of fruit on the vine so we've had to make a lot of adjusting decisions in some cases having farmers actually dropping crop in the drought simply to try to keep that balance to a point that we think the, the vines can actually ripen up and finish also just trying to be conscious of the fact that this is a lot of stress on these plants and we don't really want to go into the next season having pushed them so hard that they can't produce again the next year or worse. So, you know, Texas is, is a, what I would consider a very marginal place for agriculture. Like it is real sporadic, like in a perfect world, you want to farm somewhere where you could just set your watch to the weather. Um, increasingly the world has fewer and fewer of these places. Um, and that is, some of what I think lots of regions are dealing with. Um, we've just been doing it for a long time in Texas. So because of the drought, are you all harvesting earlier this year or is it about the same time? And also, does, how does the drought affect the taste of the grapes? So um, it, again, surprisingly, we're not harvesting earlier. Like we have for a few varieties, but because we are carrying more fruit on the vines than in some years, it's actually 
taken a while. Um, it just, you know, like that, how early we harvest is like a complex mix, but it is about, you think about it, there's just a certain amount of energy a plant has to put into the fruit in order to produce the sugars to make, you know, a sort of a good, ultimately a good wine. Um, and these conditions are not the most conducive, actually, because even at this heat, some plants start to slow down or shut that down a little bit as far as the actual ripening. Um, luckily, you know, again, every variety is a little bit different, but we're we're seeing some good quality coming out, but we're also seeing in few instances vineyards where we're having to uh, we're having to pick like earlier than we would want to, just simply because we don't think the vines can carry the fruit as far as they should. Um, what I would say is that like I I've been a winemaker in Texas all my life, so my experience of winemaking is partly just defined and you know sort of shaped by being here. But whenever we're comparing with people in other regions, they're usually fascinated by all of the much more like complex kind of uh, engineering and decision-making we have to do here because we don't get the benefit of consistency. So we kind of go into every year having to deal with, like think about this year, like it was wet and it was actually pretty moderate, but we did have to sort of go on, okay, but what if we have late freezes? What if we have like, we have lots of rain over the summer? What if we have a drought over the summer? All of those things are basically normal here. It just, you don't have a decent way of predicting which ones you're going to deal with. So we actually make and plan everything within this winery in terms of how do you farm in a way that is going to be sustainable for decades when that's the sort of variability you're going to experience. And some of it is, is that you can't be as aggressive about just leaning into like one strategy thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be like this every year for the next 20 or 30 years straight, which is you know, all farmers deal with uncertainty and risk. It's just that farm growing grapes in Texas, it's a higher degree than you would growing grapes in certain regions that maybe sit like closer to a coast or something like that that's more moderated. So anyway, then again, I mean, like the short answer then is we'll make some really good wines out of this, but it is like most years in Texas, very typical where it's a challenging, we have to, we have to craft a strategy just for this year, just to deal with the conditions because it is unique in its, in its way. So, you know, when you talked about, uh, the grapes and coming from one season to another, and it seems like there may be a shortage of grapes next year based off the weather you're having now, possibly me as a commodity trader, my earlier years in life makes me think, Oh my gosh, are we paying more for wine next year because of what this summer may be set up? Am I thinking the right way? You are thinking the right way in so much as there's opportunity in those swings, right? Um, certainly, we try to bring in as much fruit as we can in years like this, even when we think there's going to be a good crop because of the risk that we won't have it next year. So we, as an example, we grow and also then contract with other vineyards an amount that it's almost always every year above what we think we want to produce because we're having to be prepared to have, we want to have wine in a year where it's low. Now, I wish the wine industry worked the way that you're talking about as far as there being like almost like a sort of like a commodity premium when the it's scarce because of the fact that wine is this multi-year production stream. Some of that is cushioned because even if you have low low amounts of a certain vintage one year, it's sort of this is kind of cushioned out over several years. But the other thing to bear in mind is we sell wine and price it 
to some degree, at least in a global market, right? So if we have a drought here and there's less fruit, say next year because of some, some conditions, that does not necessarily mean that the broader market is going to suddenly give us a premium for the scarce amount of Texas wine. Now, it might mean that in a tasting room, you could expect to charge more as a winery or, of course, have to pay more as a consumer. But like, as an example, when I sell Tempranillo, which is one of our primary grapes in, say, Whole Foods, you're walking over to a section or that has Tempranillos from Spain, Tempranillos from, you know, maybe you'll find one from Southern Oregon. Maybe you will find one from uh, Portugal. The point is, is that it's a global market and those prices, I, yeah, we, we have to just stay consistent to our, like kind of our positioning and segment in there, but we don't get as much say about saying it's really scarce. You need to jump on it. That's mostly only true at like the higher end of this market where you're talking about like Bordeaux and futures and that sort of thing where, you know, people look at those and they will, they will literally, you'll see this, like it's like an open market price, but that is partly because there are all of this sort of scarcity signaling going on. So, well, you know, um, with regards to the, the different types of wine you make here, are there any one wine that's more sustainable than another, or is your vineyard sustainable across the board and all things create equal sustainability wise? If there are differences in some of them, kind of explain why some would be treated one way versus another. So one, one thing that we've been focusing on is actually increasing our production in, um, in again, organic grown grapes. And so we have now two vineyards that are finally completing that transition. Um, and we have found that, that is, there are only some sites in Texas where that is practical right now, like in terms of doing it. And the reasons are many, but it is about finding a place where you have all the right components for this. You have the right, as, as good a weather as you can expect in Texas, that you don't have as many past environmental like types of threats. Like Texas, the whole country here, it can be difficult because the ranges of humidity can be high. The amount of pest pressure is high. There's just a bunch of factors that make it hard. Uh, there are parts of West Texas that are actually really well suited for organic. Um, and so those parts of the program are increasingly more sustainable, like because you're already starting with like a very sort of sustainable operation on that grape growing side. In the winery, from a winemaking point of view, there are certainly some, like in general, the less we have to do in what we'd call like interventionist winemaking, where you're you're having to do a lot of tweaking, a lot of temperature control, all of those sorts of things, then the footprint is almost inevitably lower on those wines. And truthfully, like there's, you know, that is, that is the case typically with wines that like the easiest, some of the like lowest intervention happens to be some of those like sort of longer aging reds where mostly we're letting the fermentation happen naturally. We're not having to do, we're just doing spontaneous fermentations, which means not having to add yeast. Um, and then those wines are tucked away to do most of their development by just being put in an underground cellar. So those are actually probably the best footprint. Like we have a wine we're doing with Whole Foods called Aletheia, and it's mostly what is now sourced entirely from that organic set of vineyards out in the High Plains, and then goes through a fairly low intervention winemaking program. And eventually, once those are fully certified, will be made with organic grapes certified as well. But those are probably have the best sustainability footprint. Um, but it's otherwise, it's sometimes hard to get a measure of this because it is like I, was, I, I mentioned to you guys before we started the podcast, there are these like sustainability and practice, like kind of 
sort of templates, but then you really get into that definition of which aspects of sustainability and how are you scoring and prioritizing them to find an answer. Because what I don't have the, even the measurement, for example, right now to give you a measure of something as simple as like carbon footprint. Like that would be like a maybe a standard you could use. I don't have that down to I make a viognier, here's the carbon footprint. If I make a tempranillo, here's that footprint. It'd be good to get to that point, but we don't have the measurement, honestly, at this point to, to do that. You know, and you're not alone in that. That measurement's hard to get, and people are trying to figure out their carbon footprints. That's difficult to get in any industry right now, particularly in the United States. It's a little easier in Europe because they've got a little more standard standardization has been put into place. We're working on that. We've got we've got project partners and. That's what they're trying to do. They're coming from Europe to try to teach everybody over here on how to be more sustainable and how to score. So that is something that we're going to see the U.S. continue to develop. We're just not quite there yet. And so uh, I know from looking at your website, you talked about how you have a natural pest control management system put in place. Tell the listeners about that. Sure. I mean, a lot of on the pest control side is is limiting using any kind of pesticides that would knock out the majority of the insects that are actually beneficial. Like there is a balance that you can achieve in the vines typically where you have as many of the sort of the predators of the pests that you would wish to see go away as you do the actual pests. And that's the, one of the most common ways we're doing this is focusing on just keeping a set of you know, healthy canopy, healthy soil, healthy ground cover, because with those, we can generally find a balance with most of the pests and not having to then be using synthetic products in order to naturally, because it, it's sort of one of those, once you go down the path of using, say, a lot of pesticides, you're, you've now, like, you're almost trying to farm in a sterile environment, like with respect to at least the, the, the various different insects and everything else that's involved. Um, and it's hard to find any balance. At that point, you're actually very vulnerable to like a, you know, influx of a particular pest. Now, it, there are still some challenges here. And so we still use some products that are sort of organic, some of them are organic certified, but they can be very sort of benign in terms of what they can do. These are traditional products like using sulfur, which that's mostly for fungicide. We can use, essentially we have like a, a spray that is more, still more fungus, fung, fungus focused, but it's like using like almost like a hydrogen peroxide type of spray. Those are, again, these are organically certified sprays. Um, but they're, the point is they're not really meant to knock out pests. We're mostly counting on actually keeping all the natural sort of insects that are in there. And that works most of the time. Uh, that high plains are much easier for this. And that's why I say it's like doing sustainable agriculture up there is typically easier. In part because have you guys, you guys spent a lot of time on the high plains? Not a lot, no. What, what, you, what you'll find is there's not a lot of, uh, like most of your vineyards are in a, like a, a barren field. Like there's not, there's like, there's grassland and we do have, like you do have some pests that are associated with grassland, but it's not like here in the hill country where you might be next to like a creek where you have all kinds of insects that are in these riparian areas. There really isn't such an equivalent in the high plains. Um, it is, it is in a sense, it's a type of desert, but it's, it's a, that environment actually makes it nicely suited. It's dry. Um, it's, it's only real knock isn't really about pests or anything else. It is that it's the high plains. Like this is the place you think of tornadoes and like, you know, 80 degree temperature changes from cold fronts or from heat waves. 
And that's the challenge, but um, it actually makes it a relatively uh, clean environment for farming, so. Well, you know, um, since you and Julie have taken over from your parents, they should be very proud of what you've done and, you know, how you've continued uh, their quest of wine and what you've created in this boutique winery that you have here, okay? How many cases of wine altogether uh, do you guys put out on an annual basis? So we do about, it's usually about twelve to 15,000 cases. Um, and, you know, the majority of that sells directly to wine club members and consumers who come here on site um, or that we ship to as part of, say, like the, the memberships. Um, but we also do sell and distribution in Texas. So in most of the like major cities here in Texas, you'll find it in central markets, you know, HEBs and Whole Foods, as well as a lot of your local restaurants and local wine shops. Um, and, you know, like one of the things that's really been exciting about being in the Texas wine industry is just seeing how much that has changed since we started. Like in 2005, 2006, when I was here, you would probably see three or four brands and a handful of locations. Uh, now you'll see a, several dozen brands and you'll see everything from really small boutique producers to our larger producers in state. And you'll see sommeliers that are excited and educated about it because they recognize there's actually like premium wine in Texas, but there's specific qualities that Texas can produce that make it worth experiencing, right? Like, I mean, if you decide you want to experience a region, one of the things you do is often try the wines, whether that be an Argentinian Malbec or you go and get a Shiraz from Australia. Texas produces some amazing hot weather varietal wines, and it's a chance to actually experience this is a piece of sort of Texas culture and Texas terroir. So. I know when Ann and I go out to eat, when we get the wine list, if they have a Texas wine section, we always buy that Texas wine, something from the Texas wine. We want to support the area, you know, and it may not be one that we've actually been to. We try to get something we haven't been to just to experience it, but we are seeing it more and more. And, and I think that's good for the state, the economy and the wine industry in general. So. I don't have a lot more to ask, David. Uh, is there something that we haven't covered that you were wanting to get out there to help to continue the education of sustainability in the wine market to the listeners? I mean, I, I appreciate that you guys, I like to say is that you guys do this podcast because the, the sustainability is a tricky subject. We sometimes feel a little bit, um, I don't know how to put it, like we don't want to overstate ever what we're doing because you know, like there's as we start to get to a place, for example, where we have an organic grower, we have something sort of tangible to point at. But sustainability is something that hopefully everybody is trying to do in some ways. So it's not, you know, like we like to identify ourselves as a sustainable operation. And yet there are I, there are plenty of businesses doing a better job than we are. And there are others that use the term that probably are just looking for a roadmap for how to do it. Like. What you guys do is, is fantastic because it's part of educating people on ways in which you can actually do tangible things that will increase sustainability. We're obviously in this, the boat where we're always looking for information. We're always looking for better ways we can do it. And, you know, and ultimately, if we, we want to get to a place where we can sort of put, point to those tangible things, we have some, but like it is still, we're like any normal small business. Like the the, the, we have the principle in mind, which is we want to have something that my kids and my kids generate, you know, next generation and next generation on can continue to have a healthy operation to produce a healthy product. 
and sort of all the sustainability is built on the idea, uh, that idea. But sometimes it is very difficult when it gets down the granular of should I be spending my money, time, and investment on these things to improve that or another because we don't always have a roadmap. So, yeah. There you go, David. Uh, before we sign off, why don't you tell the listeners what's the best way for them to uh, visit your website? I don't know. If, you know, is it simply your wine name? You know, <laughs> yeah, Facebook. You know, whatever you want to give social media wise. Let the listeners know so they can look you up. Well, the straight the straightforward thing is, of course, go to paternalissellers.com. Um, and like I said, that's P-E-D-E-R-N-A-L-E-S. Um, I'm sure you've heard it said many ways if you are listening from Texas. Um, come to the website. That'll give you information. Of course, we're out here in the Texas Hill Country near Fredericksburg. So you can always find us by just Googling out here. We'd love you to come and visit the winery. We are open seven days a week with the exception of just a few like Christmas and New Year's and that sort of thing. So come on out. And of course, if you're wanting to experience us like outside of here, you can always order from the website and you can find us in a lot of the different stores in your local towns and cities here in Texas. So if you're out of state, we can ship to 33 states. So just look us up. So Very good. That's David Cocken from Pernalis <laughs> Sellers. How about that? Did I get close? <laughs> close oh, enough? Like, like Macaulay Cole. Like my colleague, David Culkin. How's that? There you go. Co-owner and executive winemaker. His sister, Julie Culkin, is also the co-owner and handles the operation side of things. Uh, thank you guys for inviting Ann and I in. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for once again, always listening to the Green Insider, powered by Renewable. This podcast was sponsored by Position Green. For an introduction to our sponsor or find out how you too could be a sponsor, refer to our show notes to contact eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast.